I'm Davinick Doyle, and you're listening to Talking Blues. I'm sitting here with Davinick Doyle in her kitchen, and she's kind enough to spend a few minutes with me to talk about her life in music. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for uh, coming to my home today. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, I always begin with how music came into your life. How did music come into your life? You know what, it's funny because I was just having this conversation with uh, some friends of my husband's and I really had to go back and, and look at something I had really kind of shut down and that music came into my life through musicals, which when I started making records when I was 17, when I first came to Toronto and I said, oh, I love Miss Saigon. Somebody said, don't tell anybody that. What are you doing? <laughs> um, so I, I kind of shut it out. But really, my mother, um, when we were living in Labrador and in Newfoundland, um, she would go to New York City a couple times a year with her, her friend, Ray Condon, and they would go see Broadway musicals. And my mother would bring back tapes of these musicals and she would listen to them over and over and over again in our kitchen while she was cleaning up on a Saturday morning. So I really grew up with the songs of Big River and Evita. And then my father uh, would direct musicals uh, when I was a little kid. Wow. So he, I know that he wrote a play. So he's a director? He's, he, is, he is actually a university professor, but okay. he's a playwright and a set designer and a lighting designer. And uh, But he would, when he uh, taught at the high school, before he taught at the university, they would do musicals every year. So he would direct them. So one year they did Cats, and I was a little kitten in it. So I was on stage with them. And so I knew all the songs, and that's what I dreamed about doing and and, uh, so it's more that than like what one pictures the, the Newfoundland kitchen parties. I did not grow up with that. Oh. No, and I, I really wish that I did, but I didn't. We didn't really have a musical family per se. We had more of a theatrical family. All my dad's side of the family uh, were involved in the drama festival. And they would direct and act and do everything. And... And you wanted to go to the National Theatre School. I did, yeah. So really, that was my leaning. It wasn't really that much toward music. My mom would play some guitar and sing us songs when we were little kids, but it wasn't. we didn't sit around and... I don't know any songs. I, when if I'm at a kitchen party in Newfoundland or Cape Breton, which is my favorite thing to do, I stand there like adult because I, don't rem- I have a terrible memory. I don't remember any words. I, uh, you know, I'm really just more of a observer rather than a participant but yeah and then we would listen to Willie Nelson and Lucin Williams things like that if only they played memories at I, you know from cats for you know I'm telling you I remember all those words I remember all the words from Miss Saigon let me tell you and it's funny but yep when I was doing a, a writing appointment up here first one of 17 so naive and so green and I was doing a solo project of original material I was always writing I really consider myself primarily a storyteller um, however those stories are told whether it's through the written word or through songs or on stage that I really, you know, in that time that it was really, uh, I should be embarrassed that I liked musicals. <laughs> and I did kind of had a, I did my first record, you can hear 
the influence of musicals on my voice. Um, when I was in high school, I did a production of Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim. Right. So I was cast as the witch, but for my acting abilities, they kind of said, well, she'll pull it off with her voice. I mean, because I had a very kind of light, weak soprano voice. And then somewhere halfway through rehearsals, this voice came out of me that I did not realize I had up until that point because I was taking singing lessons and, you know, competing at the Kiwanis Music Festival, kind of, eh, you know, I had a nice enough voice. Oh, you know, that type of thing. And then this, that's when I discovered my, the belt inside of me, you know, the power that how, I have. How does that happen? I, it just literally it came out and it scared me. It scared everybody. It was probably professionally the most exceptional thing I've ever been a part of in high school when we did Into the Woods. It was just, oh, it was incredible to me. And people still, I'm 42 years old. I did that when I was 15 or 16. People still come up to me on the street when I'm home in St. John's and say, I remember you in Into the Woods. Wow. Yeah. So when, when you wanted to go into the National Theater School mm-hmm. and you couldn't, was that yeah. devastating? Um, like, did you think you were going I'm to be trying- an actor? I did. I did want to be an actor. Absolutely. The thought, I, I didn't, I, I had a band in St. John's, but it wasn't a serious, it wasn't like I would get up and die to do it. I'd already taken a semester off university to be in a professional touring production of a play where, you know, I played a 17-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy. You know, it was so at that point, I remember in rehearsals for that, picking out my scenes that I was going to audition with at National Theatre School and 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 I didn't get in and then that summer I was working at a record distribution place called Duckworth Distribution it was above Fred's Records and I was singing around the office and I had done a tape with my band Davenet's Keep it was not what very kind of good. music uh, I don't really even know what that was you know <laughs> pop Covers Pop, or originals? No, originals okay. that I'd written with established songwriters there, uh, Jerry Finn and Jack Layton, and, uh, uh, or they had written them, and I'd co-written some. I, I, I can't really, really remember the details, but um, I was singing around the office mainly to irritate my co-worker who really disliked the song Cape St. Mary's, which is a traditional Newfoundland folk song. And I would sing it over and over and over and over again just to get under his skin as a joke. And uh, Graham Stairs was there. Um, He was setting up an independent label distributed through EMI. At that point, the East Coast was exploding. Sloan, Ashley McIsaac, and they really thought that this was a place that they should explore. And Graham overheard me singing around the office and... uh, Fred, who was my boss at the time, well, look, she's got a tape. Listen to the tape. And anyway, so as Graham tells it, he put the tape in. He went halfway around the block, and he said to Fred, we should sign her. Like, she's really good. And What do you think was on that that they were interested in? Um, I guess there might have been a, a naivete there. And I obviously, I had the voice. And... You know when you don't overthink something, that's sometimes when a lot of the pearls are there. So there might have been something in there that they heard. Um, but it wasn't, I wasn't chasing it. It just kind of happened, which in life is a blessing and a curse too. So when that 
when that I, I presume he made an offer for to record you. Yes. When that offer was made, what did you think? Well, you know, Fred came in and said, "You're going to be a star." I was like, "All right, cool, why not?" And at that point, before I signed the contract, I started coming up to Toronto on weekends while I was back in university. And it was, you know, I was writing, trying to find my voice. And then finally I wrote that song called List of Things with Tim Welch. And I had most of the lyrics written before I went to the session. And if I look back, really... The lyrics to that song are, you know, I don't ask for things I don't think I can get and I won't wait for things to fall into my lap or something like that. It was very, it could have been like a Zen mantra song for a yoga class or something. It was, you know, it was, oh, wow, isn't that amazing that I thought that at 17? Um, Because really that's not the way the world works. But when we wrote that song, I, I thought, oh, oh, this is, this is actually pretty good. And so then I signed the contract and came back a couple of months later and we recorded that record put out my first single sometime after that my memory's terrible so I don't remember exactly when and that song list of things went top five in Canada it was like a top five video on much music and I got all sorts of nominations nominated for Juno for best new solo artist this is all at 18 or 19 or whatever I was then and you're not chasing it like I don't no. know what like I don't know what you were thinking in terms of what this would result in. Do you have any idea? I, I honestly, it's that thing that I remember my dad putting me on the plane to move to Toronto and just, and I was 17 or 18 and he was just going, Oh my God. And I was just going, da I can do anything because my parents really instilled this belief in me that I could do anything and be anything I wanted. But this was the train that was taking off from the station. So I was getting on that train. But this wasn't the thing that you were going after. It wasn't what I was going after at all. Um, but it, it worked. And so that first song came out. I thought, wow, this is amazing. And it's so easy. And then we put the next song out. And then it only got to top 30. And then the single after that, nothing really happened with that. And then I was like, oh. And then I went on the road with Steve Earle. I got this opening spot, spot excuse me, with Steve Earle. And Amy Lou Harris's Wrecking Ball album had just come out. And I was obsessed with this record. That's normally how I listen to records. I listen to maybe three records a year, and I listen to them 500 times if I love it. That is, is, is there an album that you're listening to right now? Um, what am I listening to right now? I'm listening to Casey Musgraves. Okay. New record is great, and Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit oh, is... He's, oh. Sorry, is that the newest one? Yeah, the newest one. Right. <laughs> he is amazing. Oh, and the whole band, everything. I... I I have studied that record. I think it's spectacular. Dave Cobb's an amazing producer. What he brought to that band is unbelievable. Seeing them live is the best show probably I've ever seen. Wow. I'm very inspired by that. Okay, sorry to interrupt, but. Yeah, no, and uh, so anyway, so I was into that Wrecking Ball album that Daniel Lenoir had produced big time. And I was standing, standing side stage, and Steve started singing that started singing that song, Goodbye, which was on the Amy Lou record. I was like, oh my God, he wrote this. He wrote this. This is what I want to do. Okay. And at that point, I didn't really play guitar. Um, So I took a couple of years. I mean, I did this sporadic sporadic show here and there, but I took a couple of years, learned how to play guitar, and wrote with people all over the world, and learned how to really write songs. And... 
looked at it as a craft and I said, if this is what I'm going to do, um, that I want to be able to do it well. And so that was kind of the turn I, cause I left the industry for a while and I had tried to pursue some acting and I realized that that was a horrible life for the type of person I am. Mm -hmm. Got an agent. He was amazing. I got a, you know, a day on earth final conflict, which was fun. And I was like, this is the world of being an actor makes you so self-aware. Yeah. And as a songwriter and as a storyteller, you have to be an observer. And in fact, it's the opposite from what being an actor is. Um, if you're auditioning, right? It's the, it's only the auditioning part. What's the that worst part? Though? It is. <laughs> it's terrible when you have to obsess about how you look. I just it just made me feel terrible, and I realized you know what, this this is not what I want to do. This is not how I want to live. Mm -hmm. I don't want to look at my how I'm presenting myself. Um, I want to look inwardly, and I want to look outwardly. Um, so then eventually I did return back to the music business. Before you talk about that, yeah. tell me about that experience of traveling across Canada yeah. with Steve Earle. Oh, um, first tour across the world, across the country? I, no, I had done a couple of tours before that, some promo tours. and okay. But that was really the first opening slot that I had um, where musically I was in awe. And what did you learn from that experience? Oh, just... Just what I truly, it got to the heart of, mat, of the matter to me about what I love about music. I love Americana music. I love Lucinda Williams. I love Steve Earle. I love Jason Isbell. Like, I love Willie Nelson. Um, and later on, I'd get to go on the road with Willie Nelson, open up for Willie Nelson with Shay and sing with him every night. It was unbelievable. But with the Steve stuff, he had just, he had just gotten off of, everything except for cigarettes and right. he it was a shock he got across the border <laughs> for this tour I mean he was freshly out of jail and rehab and he would come down and pace like a cat smoking a cigarette back and forth in the dressing room talking to myself and Corey Tedford who was playing with me at the time who is you should speak to him and look up his music Corey Tedford he's from Newfoundland he plays with Alan Doyle he is one of the greatest living musicians, blues, soul, gospel, alive. The fact that he is not an international superstar is a travesty. With your love of blues, please look him up. He would come down and talk to Corey and I in the dressing room every night and just talk about music, talk about writing, talk about his past, his experience, talk to us, try to get us like, well, what do you want? What do you, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it was very encouraging. Oh, very encouraging. And at that point, he had a record label called E2 Records, I think. Memory, again, terrible. And at the end of it, they were like, oh, we should sign you to this label. And How did you get that tour? Uh, just through, I can't remember, I think it was the promoter. And was that a big deal for you? I mean, I would imagine it oh, would be. Uh, yeah, it was. Absolutely, yeah. But, but I, the reality of being an opening act is yes. that it could be very expensive and you could walk away not making much money. Oh yeah, you don't make any money as an opening act. So you go into this yeah. thinking it's exposure. It's exposure. It's exposure. Everything Canada, the only country where a musician can die from exposure. 
Everything you do is for exposure. Right. Um, but it's a necessary evil. It, it is. But I, I mean, for me, and still for me, the opportunity to travel and to learn new things is, you know, having two young kids now, that's the one thing I do miss, being able to take off at the drop of a hat and right. go to Japan or go, you know, whatever, and just absorb life. So I've always been that way. I've, we grew up traveling as family, and uh, so I was just excited about it. And it was, it was an incredible experience. It was, it was eye-opening, and, and I really, at the end of it, I realized if this is what I want, if I want to continue in music, I, I want to do it well. Did so. you know how to get there? Like, no, it took me years. It took me years. Literally, I went to write with people in L.A. and Nashville, here, trying to find out who I really was to get my authentic voice as a musician, as a storyteller. But when you have a very strong voice, which I do have, sometimes it's not helpful because you can sing pretty much any genre or anything and you're malleable um whereas if you have a very specific voice you know you either fit here folk or blues or something you know but I really could sing anything and and I was just experimenting to try and find out who I was so I would work with a lot of writer producers who really were like oh you should be this and you know so I went down lots of rabbit holes because I didn't know who I was yet because I hadn't lived in you know, some people come out and they know who they are at 18. I did not. I did not know musically who I was at 18. But, and, and yet you had success on your first album. And when you get a Juno nomination, you have ECMA yes. um, yeah. awards. Yeah. At that point, you're still not sure who you are. Oh, I had no idea. No, I had absolutely no idea. I mean, except for that one song, List of Things, which I think was, you know, there are there are a couple things on that record. I mean, it's just me, you know, it's like you don't show somebody your first journals when you're just learning how to write, but that's what that record is. They were my first journals learning how to write. Um, you know, so now here I am at 42. I just did my first solo record in 15 years. And I feel like it's my first record that I've ever made. You wrote most of the songs or how? Uh, yes. I either wrote them or co-wrote them with my best friends. So you feel that way because the songs reflect more who you are than ever before? Well, I truly I truly know who I am. And I truly know the music that I like. And I think I'm really good now. <laughs> it's taken me a long time to think that. Um, and I just have conviction and I have an inner clarity and... I'm not in a situation where I have a record label that needs me to sell a certain amount of units or wants my image to be one thing. Or uh, There is grace and beauty with aging if you want to look at the positive side of it. It's so freeing. When I turned 40, it was just kind of like, I don't give a flying <laughs> about anything or anybody except for my own convictions and the people that I love. When do you think you you, def- you figured out who you were? Like, I know it's not Sorry, one moment. Sorry, did you moment. say when? Yeah, like at um, what point? It's probably something you look back on and say, I'm more comfortable who I am. Um, you know, I would say... 
I really started to feel comfortable when we started the band, The Heartbroken, at the beginning. Um, because it was the four of us, myself, Stuart Cameron, Pete Fusco, and Blake Manning. And we were really just making music for ourselves. complete. And when we started, I was playing acoustic and Stuart was playing acoustic through an amp. And we'd play at the Dakota and it was just electric. It was... Uh, we attracted people, we moved people. And I remember I had these boots and these brown cowboy boots. And I felt like in, in, in acting to really get the character of somebody, if you're on stage, you have to wear the, the footwear, right. you know, in rehearsal. And I felt like, Oh, I've grown into these shoes. I've grown into these shoes. And at that point, um, we had a lot of people in the industry, a lot of artists go, oh my God, I love what you're doing. Um, and so we got a lot of critical attention in that sense. And that opened me up to writing with bigger and better writers in Nashville and learning, learning. It opened me up to learning. And it's been a journey since that point to just keep exploring that. And I think, you know, having kids, uh, starting therapy is amazing, you know. Um, I wish I did it 25 years ago, but I just started about a year and a half ago, and it's been really, really helpful for me as an artist, really, just to break down what means something. You know, I brought something up to my therapist, and I said, yeah, but what about, she was like, you told me at that last session that that, that, particular thing wasn't good so why are you even revisiting that I'm like you're absolutely right you're absolutely right you know um I don't know and I think it is a woman when you turn 40 it's like the train was taken off same thing when I was 17 the train's taking off and I hopped on with power strength and conviction okay so you've had like certain success before then with both your solo career and with your first band yes um, did that feel totally not you? Did it feel awkward or? No, it did. I mean, I had, as a solo artist, I felt uncomfortable. I did. Oh. And I remember, uh, when because... I just felt uncomfortable, I felt uncomfortable on stage, felt uncomfortable people looking at me. I didn't really feel like it was authentic. Um, I I wasn't like I need to do this. I didn't have that yet. I didn't have that. This is my calling. What did you have? What 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 drove you at that point? Um. I knew that I was on the right path, and I could see it. I could see. I've always known there's something great inside of myself, and I always knew I was one step away from it. So, but when you put that much work into something, you still keep chasing it. Right. So I think that was it. And then uh, Tara McLean and Kim Stockwood and I joined a band um, on the suggestion of Dean Cameron, who was the president of EMI Music Canada. And this also happened by happenstance, right? It, it like did, yeah. Said- we were, uh, Kim and Dana Manning and I sang a song, I think it was a Beatles song at an EMI anniversary party and Dean saw it he said wow that's a great that'd be a great band because the three of us were all on EMI and 
you know, Kim had had a big hit with Jerk, but right. since then, we were all kind of like, they'd thrown a lot of money into us and none of us were really taking off. Um, and so I loved Kim. I thought she was just the best. She was the maid of honor in my wedding. And I loved Dana. And But Dana decided that wasn't the right thing for her at that point because she, she, you know, hadn't been doing it as long, wanted to continue her solo and then Tara McLean moved into town with a new baby. And uh, then we asked her if she wanted to be a part of the band. And she accepted. She said, yes, I still want to do my solo stuff. But yeah, let's do it. And so we did it. And it was, it was great. I remember the first time we, we were playing, of all things, like a Walmart convention or something. I remember it's burned into my head what I had on. We stepped on stage. And we sang two songs acoustically. And I was like, oh. I feel comfortable on stage for the first time. So having the camaraderie of my two sisters there on either side of me made me feel comfortable on stage for the first time as a singer. I've always been comfortable on stage as an actor, but as a singer, I felt like, oh, I can, I can like take a, st I always like, I'm, I'm, it might seem to people that I'm an extrovert, but I'm actually very shy and an introvert and you know talking to people you know small talk freaks me out and uh, you know anxiety so I felt like I had a security blanket there and we were able to work with one of the best producers in the world um Jay Joyce who's gone on to have huge success um in Nashville has been nominated for multiple Grammys as producer of the year and but we were drawn to him because he produced a record for Patty Griffin called Flaming Red. It's a great album. She's amazing. Oh, she's unbelievable. And this is like the quintessential Patty record. So we kind of sought him. Kim and I went to Nashville and kind of stalked him and made him come up to Canada and <laughs> produce our record. And we had we wrote a huge hit song called Happy Baby. Very authentic. That that felt very that first record was very authentic. We were having fun. It was nice to have that camaraderie. Jay was a great producer. We had great musicians. And, and it came out and it was a huge hit. Like it still had, it's, it's had hundreds of thousands of spins on radio. It's, it's, it was a big one. We got nominated too for a single of the year at the Junos. And we had a lot of success. And then it was a bit more, more kids got thrown into the mix. And then the timing got longer and, and then by the time we went in to do the second record, I think people were preoccupied with their families. I didn't have any kids at the time, so I might have, you know, I was nose to the grindstone, let's get this going. So maybe I, I took some more of the reins musically, which is never really a good thing in a band because then not everybody feels as involved. Right. Um, but... For whatever was happening at that point in Tara's head, she was kind of checking out because she wanted to do her solo thing. And But this band at this point was a machine. It was going, there wasn't a lot of time to do anything else. And, you know, it's not always fun being in a band. I didn't find it <laughs> always fun either, but, you know. Uh, we were on the road with Willie Nelson, which was unbelievable. And we had a documentary film crew um, that was shadowing us, doing a show, I can't remember, for the, the network, 
at that point, which the budget was millions of dollars. And then in the this middle, is almost like a reality TV thing. It right? was. Following. It was pitched to us as a documentary, and right. what we signed off on was the documentary. And then we switched directors, and uh, the first director was amazing, and the second director was amazing. Paul was amazing, but it was more of a reality show. And then you're in there, and you're like, well, this is what's happening, I guess, you know, with some more setup shots, things like that. Um, and then Tara let us know in the middle of the Willie tour that she would be quitting the band. So that was devastating for me. That really knocked me off my, be not, you know, just because I realized I didn't have any control. Right. I don't have any control over my career. What I just, I had put out a really nice solo record right before the Shea record and that Gordy Sampson produced. And there's some really lovely, great stuff on there, but I didn't promote it. I didn't do anything with it. I did one tour opening up with Tom Cochran. But other than that, I just focused on Shea. So I really like, well, I should, maybe I made the wrong decision, you know? Um, so that was disappointing. And Kim and I tried to carry on, but it really, it, two after three, it doesn't, it was really the synergy of the three of our voices. Right. It was really, it was, and you can't put anybody else in there. Um, the three of our voices, we just had this unique, really beautiful blend. And even, you know, we got back together a couple of years ago to do a benefit show in Prince Edward Island. And we started to sing and I was like, oh my God, this really is special. And I'd block that out because, you know, you don't, yeah. I'm not a dweller on things. Can I ask... So, you know, you had ex success, you, you were mm -hmm. with a major label. Austin, mm -hmm. that's a different game altogether, mm -hmm. right? Because, like you said, they were sinking lots of money into you and yeah. they're looking for results. Yeah. Did you feel the pressure of that? Uh, oh, of course. And, and, and yeah. how, I don't know what the right way of asking is, how different is the way you approach music when you have that kind of pressure versus how you feel now? Well, you create music... Uh, based on, especially, you know, in the radio years, is radio going to like this? Mm -hmm. Is this going to be a single? Or who are we appealing to? Um, oh, I don't think that's going to fit with everything else. And we're really, you know, on my last record, which I didn't play any, you know, even my amazing manager, the songs, really, she had some, some voice memos of some of the songs until the record was done. I was like, this is, I don't want it. After being in two bands for 15 years, I don't want anybody's input, really. You know, I'd ask some people here and there, should this song go on? What are the, you know, we were in the studio with the collection of musicians there. I was like, should we, with the last song, I remember we sat down and there was, we were going to record one more song. It was down between two songs. And I was like, but uh, then, of course, in the end, I made the decision. But um, yeah, it just, it's, it's based on your own internal barometer as opposed to an external barometer. Mm. And the only barometer you can trust is your internal one. You know, as, as I go on in life, I am trying every day to turn the intuition back on and back up because you have to, you know, when you're in the industry of music, you kind of have to tune it out because you'll be oh, fighting. You're like, I know this isn't right. Anytime I had intuition that something wasn't right and I still did it, I was right. I was always like, oh, why didn't I listen to myself? Um, intuition is a very strong thing and should be cultivated in young musicians. 
But when you when you've lived with a number of hits that like you have, yeah, are there times when you write a song and you think it's just brilliant and it does nothing and yeah. and and how does that influence? Well, um, right now, everything that I've written, uh, my expectation is that it will do nothing. So that really because um, because that is. I think in this industry and at, you know, being a youth obsessed industry at 42, I really believe, you know, that that could be what happens with my record. But I do know that the people who get it are going to love it. And that's the only thing that matters to so me. So how do you, is that how you measure success? Like if I said, well, yes. what do you hope this will do? I don't know if you can give numbers or if you no. have ideas. but I hope that this record gets into the right hands of musicians that I admire and love and that they like it. And maybe I'll get a couple of opening slots. And other than that, that is Sherry's job. Because I have learned that anything else, any expectations that I attach to it, only make me disappointed in something. Because right. I can't control that. Um, I will do my best. I will work my hardest to promote it. And... Um, I will take people's advice about what should be a single, if we release a single, how to how to market it. But I have, you know, I spent many years in the heartbroken that we didn't have a manager. We were self-managed. And a lot of that work, you know, the day-to-day -day grunt work um, was in in my domain. And it it didn't give me pleasure. It didn't serve me to be the one who's worried about the outcome. Right. It, I don't think it enhanced the work itself. In fact, it probably took away from the work. There was too much second guessing. And in any solo career or band that I've been in. Um, and so I, I really, I don't think about it. So you talked about the time when you started playing with Heartbroken and felt yeah. the camaraderie and this electricity happening yeah. and also with Shay and and feeling comfortable on stage yes because of these two with you now yes. you're going back to the solo world yes yeah how does that feel it feels great you know when you've been in a band and you've been in a democracy for 15 years it's just good to really just not have to you know make musical concessions for other people's and that's what a band is mm -hmm. and it should be that way it should be representative of all members of a band whether you know it's the four of us in the heartbroken or the three of us in Shay. and i just i'm at a position where i really wanted to create something that was 100 percent me now with the knowledge i have as opposed to the knowledge i had 15 years ago and is it is it the songs that you're writing that makes you feel like this is like your first album that you're most comfortable with? Or is yeah. it where you are singing and... Uh, it's, it's the songs and it's the production and it's the approach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sing, it's singing, whatever, you know. Yeah, no, but it's, 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 it's the actual songwriting and the production. So are you better now than you have ever been? Oh, God, yeah. Because? By miles. Because I've learned so much. Because I kept my ears open. And every experience that I've 
ever had musically, whether it's been good or bad, I have taken something from it because I want to be the best that I can be. And again, I have always felt like I have kept going when there have been no signs in the universe telling me to keep going. I have kept going because I, I have known that there is something inside of me that is greater than I have already achieved. And I really feel, regardless of how people react to this record, I really feel like for me, for my specific love of the music that I love, um, that I made that with this record. It's called Liquor Store Flowers. Um, When's it coming out? I would say next year. But I'd have to call Sherry and ask her because I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we're just mastering it in the next couple of weeks. But I'm sure a lot of people will go, oh. I mean, I have people come up to me all the time going, oh, when is Shay getting back together? I just loved that band. And when you would sing, it's because that's that person's specific love of yeah, harmony. Yeah. I have, I'm sure when I play these shows, people say, oh, I miss the heartbroken. You know, because, but that was like, a, we ended up being a rock and roll band, you know. Um, but for me in that band, towards the end, it really wasn't about the songs, really or the lyrics or the it was driven by the energy our our energy on stage which is has always been something mm -hmm. like it's 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 fireworks um and people will absolutely say to me oh i i miss that and you know there'll be parts of me that miss that kind of energy um but this is a different thing this is lyric driven song driven and I'm really proud of it. Okay, so the reason I sought you out was there was an article or there was a press release a, a couple months ago okay. um, talking about copyright reform mm -hmm. in the House of Commons. And you had made a comment about how difficult it is for musicians, how things have changed. Yes. Knowing that, because you've seen both sides, or yes. you've seen the world as it was in the past yes. versus now. I mean, how do you, how did you as an artist approach music differently because in, of it in terms of making living yeah um well to be honest a lot of my work in the last nine months has been more advocacy work i've gone to ottawa to speak on parliament hill and and uh i spoke at the copy copyright review and uh it was incredible it was an incredible experience because i was choking up i was almost crying there were other people in the room who were crying because I really laid out how challenging it is for musicians these days to get paid. Um, because we're up against huge companies that have a lot of money and resources to lobby for certain um, certain parts of, of the copyright bill that adversely affect musicians and songwriters. So because we were not united in the past as all branches of mm -hmm. music creators, we didn't win those fights. So somebody like me... Who's Sorry, when you say we didn't win, was anybody fighting for the musicians back then? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. But it would be more like songwriters against publishers, against labels, against... Everybody went in there with their own agenda. So we all lost out. But now collectively as a as an association of music creators 
I believe we are now all on board to, we all know that we need to stand together to make change in government. So when you go and explain the situation of what a songwriter or a musician has to go through today, mm -hmm. um, do they understand what you're saying? Can, can they understand the impact? That they understand the impact when I spoke because I showed them the level of poverty that people are living in that they were not living in 20 years ago. And you can throw numbers at people. They like numbers. You can throw statistics at people. But when you say that Somebody who is an award-winning, and I have a million examples of this, award-winning, lauded, the person they, they play at their kid's wedding, the person they play on the radio on the way to the parliamentary buildings, that that person cannot make a living. And I mean by not make a living, I mean eke out some kind of substandard living in poverty. And that that's the way we are treating our artists is shameful. And I think as artists, we have been reticent um, to come forward and say, like, for instance, I don't make a living from music. I've nom been nominated for a bunch of Junos, won a million East Coast Music Awards. I've traveled all over the world. Um, there's no way in hell somebody of my stature is making a living from music. I make a living because I do voiceovers. Mm -hmm. Um, when I'm lucky enough to get them. And, uh, you know, it's... We used to be ashamed to speak out about our stories because I think it seemed like a reflection on our music. You know, well, you know, government was very quick to say, well, you're not getting paid because you're not very good and you only have this many... I've only sold this many records and, but Shania is doing great, you know, right. but now I believe everybody feels the need to step up and just be honest. And we know it's not a reflection on our music because everybody's in the same boat. Unless you are Justin Bieber, you're in the same boat or Blue Rodeo. That's it. Are you hopeful that things can change? I am. So you would think that they would legislate things that I think that there will be copyright board reform because basically the main issue now is that it's taking years and years and years to make a decision the way it's set up to make a decision on a, you know, uh, an exception or exemption in the copyright law. And then by the time a decision is made, government changes and then it's, you got to start again. So I do believe that this government will put that into place before the election, hopefully. Fingers crossed, and that will help speed things up. Um, but what would that mean? So that the, you would be getting paid more for streaming, no, or no? Okay, that would just mean that right now, every issue that we take to government has to go through the copyright board. But the way the copyright board is set up is it takes years. So this is so if they institute copyright board reform, and then we are guaranteed that the timelines, sorry, of making decisions about these things are shorter, then we might actually be able to push some of these things through. So that's, you know, those things are really secondary. I mean, we need to get past the, in my opinion, past the first hurdle to make it easier, and then we can start pushing those things through. But in terms of those things, we're not even close to that yet. So knowing that that's the yeah. landscape you're dealing with. Yes. 
and that's the reality today. Yeah. How do you do you approach making music differently? Well, I think it goes with my mindset in that I have no expectations. So yes. I have zero expectations to recoup the money I spent on this record. So why do you do it? Because I have to. And that's the best reason of all. Oh, sure. So I, I'm so I'm not mad at that. Like when you go in and you know that this is the situation and there's no expectations, is it difficult to produce the, the quality of... It's music? freeing. It's, I think the music is way better when you have no expectations. Because okay. you're truly making it for art's sake. As opposed to, oh, you know what, I should put this on because I think, you know, let's throw some lap steel all over the record because I want it to be a country record or... <laughs> You know, or let's do a remix or... When you release it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm always curious, okay, the record is almost done. Yeah. But you say it's not going to come out till next year. Yes. Is that, tell me about the process of now to next year and why it has to wait till next year. Well, when it's done, then Sherry, my manager, will start playing it for people. Because I own it. It's all mine. I, nobody's heard it. Okay. So ideally, it would be nice to have somebody to distribute it. Or maybe partner on it, but maybe nobody will like it. Nobody will. So then we'll release it ourselves. So really, then you have to get a publicist. You have to get a radio tracker. All these things really need to happen months and months and months before the record comes out. And then you put the record out when there's some kind of awareness of it or demand. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you talked about where you are in your life Mm -hmm. and you have two young kids. Yes. And that you're not really on the road. Yes. Yeah. Would you support this going on the road? Or? Oh, I, if, if the, oper- the difference is I'm not going to go out and play clubs to zero people and lose money. Right. So there's, there's no need for me to do that anymore, which I have done at several points in my career. Um, and I don't have an audience. You know, it's, I don't have an audience left over from my career 15 years ago. Really? So you don't think... Does anybody following you from your past bands? Um, there might be some, but not enough to do a cross-country tour. Yeah. No. And, but if I got a good opening s- slot and it worked for my family time-wise, I absolutely would do it. I wouldn't go out for six weeks. you know. With the success that you had in the past, mm-hmm. I know you went to Japan. I yes. didn't understand that. Yeah. But I guess there was some sort of traction in Japan. Did you ever go to the States? Or would you- I... Um, no, I never, I just went there for writing. I had a couple of opportunities to, you know, develop uh, records down there, but very pop, very, so that, that was something I decided I did not, I did not want to do. That was about 15 years ago. Um, but no, I've, I've never really, I've never toured in the States. Europe? No. no. So there's never an interest or... No, it just never... It just never happened, you know, for whatever, whatever reason, it just never happened. And the focus for the new album would be in Canada? I'd say the States or Canada. Again, you'd have it ask Sherry, I don't know. <laughs> and if you were to put it out yourself, mm-hmm. would that change anything? No, I mean, my expectations are that we put it out ourselves. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can do everything yourself now. You just put it up on iTunes. It's the sa- You can put a record up on iTunes the same way a record label can put up an, a, a record on iTunes. It's right. just the only value is that you have 
uh, you know, you can access their workforce. Right. So when you put it out yourself, you have to hire that workforce yourself. But there's so, a good chance that you could sell more with a label and get less money yourself. Uh, I guess. I don't know. I don't know anybody who's selling records. You it's know. a crazy time, isn't it? It is, yeah. Like, record labels aren't selling records. In Canada, people's biggest Canadian artists still only have, like, 6,000 Twitter followers. You know? It's, Are you still playing live that much? Uh, I played a bunch leading up to making this record. Because one thing I did learn is that you make a way better record if you've played it live. And you know what works. And that helped me pick the songs, helped me pick the keys, helped me pick the tempos. Because um, I've road tested. I've road tested these songs. and Yeah. And then at this point, do you miss the live? Um, no, I think everything has its season. You know, I, I played a lot last year, mm-hmm. and that was my first time playing alone in 15 years. And that felt comfortable. It took me a minute. The first show I did about a year ago, oh no, a year and a half ago, was whew, so scary. But it felt great. Scary felt great. because? It was scary because your security blanket is gone. Meaning the band. In the band. Right. Yeah. So I had that in Shay and I had that in Heartbroken. So you feel more exposed. Which is why I didn't like playing live when I was a solo artist before Shay. But then all those things that I had learned and experiences I had fused into me and they were present when I played on my own. I was like, I don't feel I don't feel exposed up here. I feel charged. I feel like this is what I should be doing. So I had that season of playing live along with the season of writing. And I wrote right up until... Actually, I I took a trip to Nashville at the end of January or beginning of February. And halfway through the week, and I had appointments booked all week, I realized, oh, I'm done. I'm done writing. I have nothing. As Howard Stern said, I've said it all. (laughs) I said it all. And, um, Can you explain that process? Because people do yeah. go to Nashville and work with other writers. Yeah. Tell me about what that means. And- well, uh, it's a very different experience. Like, I've done a lot of writing down there, you know, writing for pitch for other artists. And then really you can write with whoever you want. You can change it. But for my years and years of going down there, I there were only sp- specific people I wanted to write with for myself, for my own stuff. So, um, I wrote, I'd say, a third of this record on my own. I wrote two songs with uh, Gordy Sampson, who's a Grammy-winning songwriter who produced my first, my last solo record 15 years ago, right. and is an old friend. And then the rest I wrote with my girlfriends, who are all professional songwriters, uh, who are very close to me, um, you know, close, close, close friends. Close, close, close friends. And all Canadians living in Nashville. And it was, you know, we'd drink wine and we'd st- and I'm like, I was, I was just like trying to hurt myself, basically. Um, because there is this thing when you write in Nashville that you want it 
the veneer, you want the shiny, new, what's on the radio, like that's what's happening on Music Row. And I wanted to basically take an axe to that shell and get to the inside. Like I was on a mission to be truthful, to be very truthful in a way that I had maybe never been. Um, and just to expose all the ugliness and beauty and hardship and hurt and to be just to be honest and to because you have that reflex when you're writing oh this will sound nice this will sound doesn't mean anything I don't want to hear it if it doesn't mean anything I don't want to hear it so it was painful you mentioned this before and I don't know if you want to talk about it. we don't have to mm-hmm. but you talked about therapy yes yeah yeah, yeah. does that come into this like is there uh, a connection yeah. yeah it is there is a connection there um because when you're in, in therapy, you kind of, you can't pretend that everything's okay. The work is getting to the heart of the matter of what's not right. Right. And, and trying to work it out. And so before, writing songs was always my therapy. Um, but I think I'd probably always reserve a little tiny bit for myself. So what it has taught me, it's like, a problem that I've had in my life is maybe not being as I've been a people pleaser so I haven't been as clear and concise about my own desires and wants I've just wanted my I'm very sensitive I want to make sure everybody's good in the room are you okay are you okay and then I just found myself with this like anxiety size lump in my throat where I was like I'm not speaking you know and that that's a direct result of my therapy she said when this happens there's something you're not saying whether it's in day-to-day conversation you know with your partner with your kids with your friends with your work and that's what I had been doing and uh, so that's very freeing so that has been helpful in getting to the heart of the matter of uh, my stories Um, my final question to you Tell me about what you love about the storytelling, the songwriting. What's the most that you love about it? You talked earlier about um, the Newfoundland kitchen party. Mm -hmm. The stories are my version of the Newfoundland kitchen party. So when we would go to my grandmother's, nobody had instruments, but people would tell stories. You know, my Uncle Jerry, just an amazing orator and storyteller and you just would sit there and go wow it's so captivating you know all the people in my family are kind of larger than life and and um I just want to tell gripping stories that have a beginning a middle and an end that are truthful and that mean something and, and if I'm speaking about another character, like somebody else, not myself, then I still want to feel it. I want to feel it. Like a lo- some of these songs are small, little, tiny plays. Really. You know, they're not in the first person. They're quite clearly not about me, but they are me. Right. Um, about putting myself in. Really, you know, this is the one thing, you know, you, I really try and teach my kids is if you put yourself in somebody else's shoes you can it almost feels like you're them 
and yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure getting to know uh, you. Thank you so much. That was fascinating to me because I have such a bad memory and just to get all these <laughs> memories of all these things that have happened to me. It's like, oh yeah, I've had a pretty interesting life. You have. <laughs> really interesting life. And, and um, I got the chance to see your band, The Heartbroken, and I really like them and I'm really looking forward to your new album. Thank you so much. I will send it to you when it's done. Thanks. Thank you.